Okay, so wait, we're going to press record because the story has started. So you are saying? I'm in the uh, Nevada desert. It's almost sunrise. It's really cold. And I'm huddled around a walkie-talkie with four colleagues waiting to hear if the nuclear bomb that's about half a kilometer away from us is going to detonate or not. A nuclear bomb? A nuclear bomb, Camille.
So, we'll start from scratch. I'm with Brian Fitzgerald. Brian, you're um, an activist. That's how you. That's right. Or a change maker. Or change maker. As you prefer. All right. Um, you are uh, going to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you see change making today. Uh, a bit about your history, stories, um, maybe an outlook at the future. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? <laughs> And uh, we're here in a very, well, we cannot tell where we are in the world. It's secret. But we just found um, like a carpet and we're sitting on the floor. You can see on uh, YouTube the, the video version of the podcast and how rough it is. But uh, we just thought we would, you know, find a corner and have a cup of coffee together. It is 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. Most people around us are, are sleeping. And thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Um, we're going to start by maybe starting, um, maybe starting with how you got into activism. Mm -hmm. And for all of you listening, you know that there's a lot of music in our mixtapes. So we have chosen something a little bit upbeat to get you going in the, in the morning. Mm -hmm. We'll listen. Sometimes 
Brian, um, I'm intrigued, first of all, how did you get into activism? Mm. What year was that? Without, I don't want to reveal how young, how old you are. That's just for people who no. go to YouTube, they can try to figure it out. Well, we got to talk about how old I am because <laughs> at the time I was living under the, uh, the threat of nuclear war um, between the Soviet Union and the United States. I grew up in the US in a middle class family. My parents were the farthest thing from activists. They're extremely uh, conservative. Um, but I grew up with this sense of unease, of something being wrong, and I ended up going to a very conservative university, Georgetown University, where Henry Kissinger ended up teaching, and you know, that was sort of the political milieu. And again, I felt really uncomfortable. My politics hadn't formed, but I knew something was, I didn't fit in with that sort of, um, that, that, that viewpoint. And then, um, you know, I blame Jackson Brown. There was a concert that, um, was uh, uh, was happening in Washington that uh, you know I wanted to go because I liked the music I liked Bonnie Raitt I liked Jackson Brown and uh, so off I went and discovered that I wasn't at a concert I was at a rally it was a no nukes rally and um, I just uh, I just I loved the vibe I loved the tribe I loved the people that were there and um, suddenly you know that's what got me to pay attention to the issue of of nuclear weapons and nuclear power and I fell in with a group of activists at Georgetown, um, including an incredibly inspiring sort of Jesuit priest who went out and um, took the biblical uh, instruction to beat your swords into plowshares, literally, and you know would walk into the uh, places where they were making trident missiles and bash them with a hammer and destroy them and went to jail for that. And that was an incredibly inspiring sort of model. But, you know, I've thought about this a lot as a change maker over the years, that it was a concert, it was music that drew me into this activist circle and sort of made me take my first step towards addressing that question that was sleeping in my heart of, you know, what's wrong here? Right. Maybe that's this track that we're going to play just now is one of the tracks that they played at this rally slash concert. It would have been, yeah. You, you will tell me. And we're going to make some coffee in the meantime. Maybe. Excellent. Back to 
I see it. I see you at that rally. Oh man, it was incredible. Can you talk about the hair at that time or the beard? Or oh, was it was something going? full on hippie, man. It was full on hippie, down to the shoulders. All right, what happened next? Well, you know, I finished university and I, I was a little bit frustrated with marching against nuclear war because I did a lot of that. And um, I, was, uh, I was still an activist at heart, but I, I took off to a cabin in the woods in New Hampshire where it was, uh, there was no electricity, no water. I was watching it for uh, a friend's father because I wanted to write the great American novel, not a great, you know, original sort of dream, but that's what my dream was at the time. What, what, what year was that? Just to that would have been 1981. Right. Yeah, winter of 81. And I got snowed in and uh, ended up uh, you know, in, a, in a situation where I couldn't get into town to get, uh, get supplies, and I facing the real possibility that I was going to run out of food. But the worst thing was I ran out of books. So I brought a backpack full of books with me, and I'd gone through all of them. So I started to cannibalize the books that were on the shelf of this cabin. And um, one of them was, uh, was by Bob Hunter and called Warriors of the Rainbow about a group I'd never heard of before called Greenpeace. And this was 1981. It wasn't a household word back then. And I, uh, I read about these people that were going out and drawing these sort of stark, um, almost cartoon-like situations um, with, you know, putting somebody in front of a harpoon to save a whale or sailing out into a, a nuclear weapon zone to stop it. And I realized that they were doing something that I hadn't been doing. I'd been doing protest, and they were doing activism. They were doing something to actually try to change what um, they were standing against. And is that is that the difference? I think the difference was that they they were setting an example that made me want to emulate them. You know, right? And it and the the simple trick that they were doing was they were drawing up this black and white line. They were saying, you know, here's a situation. Um, uh, you have to choose. Are you on the side of the harpooner or on the side of the whale? Are you on the side of Richard Nixon who wants to set off a nuclear bomb off the coast of Canada to test the seismic uh, properties of the island? Or are you with the hippies in the boat who think there's a better way to run a planet? And right. you know, I was like, I'm on the side of the hippies. I definitely am right. over there. So that, um, so that sort of answered one question of which side you were on. But then it planted another question, which is, you know, what are you going to do about it? And I think that's the question that sort of slept in my heart through that cabin through the winter when the, 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 the snow disappeared. So you had a lot of time to think about it as well. A lot of time to think about it. Which we don't have any, anymore, no, exactly. thinking about our future.
you crying Only a few times I saw you dancing If you let me stay for the night decision at this point pretty much that you want to join Greenpeace is that correct well no actually because I thought Greenpeace was gone I closed the book um, thinking that uh, ha, amazing organization I wish they were still around and um, ran out of money hitchhiked down to Boston got a job in a bookstore which is the perfect job because as opposed to the cabin it would had heat and it I was never going to run out of books And in through the door walks uh, an old friend from, uh, from my hometown and uh, I said, Kathy, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, I'm working for this organization you've probably never heard of called Greenpeace. I said, <laughs> are you kidding? I read the book. I absolutely loved it. I really support what you're doing. And she looks at me and she says, oh, yeah, what are you doing about it? And that was the question that, you know, had been sleeping in my heart. And uh, she, um, she convinced me to go out and canvas, knock on doors, um, sort of bringing Greenpeace message out to people and fundraising. And I, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I was absolutely right. dead frightened of that. And there was nothing scary in my career. Pitching um, all day. After, well, that first door that I knocked on, that was scarier than going to sea. That was scarier than facing a nuclear weapon. That was scarier than anything I ever did right. but getting over that was what you know got my foot into the door into this incredible sort of adventure that that Greenpeace turned into for me and you and then ended spending 35 years yeah in there so it was a big yeah. decision yeah. and you can hear in the background that the water just uh, 
the water is boiling. Mm. We're ready for our cup of coffee, more or less. Excellent. So we're gonna play a bit of music and get back to, to the story. You, I fight myself, I fight God, just tell me how many burdens left I fight pain and hurricanes, today I wept I'm trying to fight back tears, flood on my doorsteps Life in living hell, puddles of blood in the street Shooters on top of the building, government aid ain't relief Earthquake, the body drop, the ground breaks The poor run with smoke lungs and scarred face Who need a hero? hero? You need a hero, look in the mirror, there go your hero Who on the front lines at ground zero? Hero. My heart don't skip a beat even when hard times bumps the needle Mass destruction and mass corruption, the souls are suffering men Clutching on deaf ears again, rapture is coming It's all prophecy and if I gotta be sacrificed for the greater good Then that's what it gotta be So now, at this point in time, you're a part of the Greenpeace. Uh, along the 35 years, you've been like um, starting offices in, in different countries. Um, there was the Soviet Union time. You've been to Ukraine. Uh, you've been involved with the with the whales. Um, a lot of things like this. And 
you are you have started the um, the digital activism program, and that's very interesting because we should talk about this um, uh, internet n internet nerd part of you. Oh, right? total, total, total nerd. Eighty-five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when I um, when I went over to the UK to start working for Greenpeace International, I brought the first um, email connection, and that was uh, uh, that was definitely nerd territory. Nobody knew what you know four of us were talking about with this this thing. The entire organization was communicating by telex, which is he's just you know, punched tape that got fed into a machine and went. <laughs> Right, and bit right. the corner, and one was coming in. Everybody flocked around the telex machine to find out what the news was from the ships and everything. And that was revolutionary, cutting-edge technology. Right. And uh, and uh, this guy named Dick Dillman out in California had been experimenting with bulletin board systems and email systems, and he and I had been connecting when I was in the states. So we brought the first transatlantic connection in, and then you know little by little brought email into the organization. This was '85, and I don't think there was 85. another. I don't think there was another NGO that was um, that was uh, that was on email at that point. And we, when we brought it into the Soviet Union, that was revolutionary because there, at the time, it took you three days to book an international call. You had no access to outside news. Um, you were completely cut off, and right. uh, that was the mentality you went into the Soviet Union with. And uh, when we uh, when we managed to set up the first email connection, it was like. <gasps> Water right. in the desert, you know. Yeah. I can get information. Right. I can communicate out. I got an email. Last. And, yeah, and it sounds silly today. It's just like it's a plague on our lives. Right. But it was revolutionary, enabling technology at the time. Yeah, I and mean, even up to um, to the standards of you know internet geeks. I mean, eighty five is early. Like it's it's like a lot of people got introduced to email really in the nineties, and yeah. it's incredible. So um, now I have smelled that delicious coffee that you've been grinding for a right. few minutes. I, I want to drink it. Let's make, Let's make a cup.
So Brian is pressing really hard on the on a coffee uh, filter right now. It's a special a special system that he's using. I invite you all to check the YouTube video to see how how good this coffee is going to <laughs> to turn out. Nice smell. I don't want to taste yet. I will taste it. Why do you tell me uh, the story of this uh, digital activism program at Greenpeace that you mm. you helped set up and um, what was sort of the mission of this? And you you spent like several decades working with that. Is that correct? Yeah. So how yeah. did it evolve and 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 what did it achieve? Yeah. Well, I think at first we faced an uphill battle. There was like three or four of us in the organization who just really had a sense that this internet thing was going to take off and that it was a, uh, a platform for activism and a real sense of, you know, a different way to reach people other than the conventional media, which was the only, you know, medium that we were using previously. But um, within the organization, I think there was a perception of why would we want to talk to a bunch of geeks behind keyboards? Because that's all the internet was to most people back then. And um, it, took a, it took a long struggle to sort of like, um, get people aware that this this was something with potential. But one thing that I always appreciated about Greenpeace is that there's nothing that convinces them better than a win. And um, one of the first wins we had was uh, in the 2000 uh, Olympics in Sydney. It was supposed to be the Green Olympics, but Coca-Cola was coming in with all these um, CFC refrigeration units that were, you know, climate killing chemicals. So um, we started an online petition to the CEO. Petition, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, wow, revolutionary, a petition on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Asking uh, Coca-Cola to, um, uh, to phase out CFCs and to, you know, remove these, uh, these units. And uh, we had this entire ground campaign planned where people were gonna go in and block the trucks and stop these things coming in and everything. And I think within two weeks, ridiculously low number of, of, of signatures, but we got a call from the CEO of Coca-Cola going, uh, well, let's talk. And the first thing they wanted was, can you take the web page down as we're talking? <laughs> <laughs> but they eventually agreed to phase out, uh, phase out climate killing chemicals and uh, they, they lived up to that, that that uh, that promise, and so we had to cancel the uh, the uh, the ground campaign, and everybody in the organization sort of went, oh, hmm, maybe this internet thing right. there's something to it after all. So uh, that was a kind of proof of concept, exactly. and uh, from then on, from then on, yeah. there was a lot of projects that went in that direction. Yeah, there were still some growing pains, but yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went well. She burns it down. She burns it down. Oh yeah. She burns it down. 
story <laughs> I can't get enough <laughs> ah well stories you know it was a time that was full of them and uh, I loved uh, I loved working for the uh, uh, you know working for the the things I was working for the values I was working for and all that but you know every now and then there's um, there's there's the things that don't go quite right you know and there's 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 the mess ups and some of those are the best stories and some of them can never be told and some of them happen behind you know uh, behind closed doors and uh, but the, um, the the stories that lived for me the most were these incredible you know stories of 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 bravery and you know, absolute courage and that you know when Tommy Crawford and I started doing the, the 
trying to, to articulate the Greenpeace story, that, that was the thing that came out again and again was courage. And um, you know, some amazing activists who went to sea and you know, risked life and limb. And this is one of the things about being on a boat that I think is hard to realize until you've been to sea with a, a crew of people that you're, you're all dependent on each other for your life. You, know, you just can't mess up. There's no room for error. Right. And um, it's a funny, funny tension within Greenpeace about the, uh, um, you know, we tend to be hippie in our values, but we're anything but hippie when it comes to how we run our ships. They're very, very, very sort of tightly run, safety first. And uh, right. you know, I went to um, to Iceland to um, to uh, uh, to save whales up there, and that was just uh, it was one of the most amazing sort of voyages of my life was just being with a group of people bonded tightly um, at sea at risk and working for something that uh, that we believed in and that was deeply yeah marked me for life yeah well it's um, definitely something that I hear a lot from uh, people from the Greenpeace uh, family and um, you have um, uh, been to South Africa uh, as well, a story there. Well, you know, I'm, I'm pushing you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, when I think about change and I think about change that I've seen in my lifetime, the, um, the thing that really impresses me is the way that I watched um, the struggle against apartheid move from a struggle that seemed impossible, that was impossible, you know, uh, a people up against the, the largest military presence on Africa that had trading partners all over the world that weren't willing to risk those trading relations over, you know, a matter of internal policy of, of uh, subjugating bl the black population and, um, or the non-white population. And um, the fact that that changed over the course of my life and I saw you know, little by little, story by story, people going out and showing up at embassies and joining the uh, the boycotts and all that. And you know, Kumi Naidu, who was uh, an activist in uh, in uh, in South Africa, tells the story that you know, it wasn't just the the Bikos of the world and the and the, the the Desmond Tutus. It was tiny stories of people changing their minds and people around him, like his his. Um, his uh, high school teacher who allowed his student radical group to meet in her house, despite that was a risk to her life and, and her freedom. And, um, you know, he sums it up, a really important lesson for activism, I think, that it, was, it wasn't until people in large numbers believed that change was possible, that change became possible. And I think that's the magic, that's the tipping point. When you get an issue that moves from the fringe to the mainstream and enough people believe it's possible, that it becomes possible. And that's the power of story.
So Brian, you wanted to put this song in because uh, uh, I just love that line. That I mean, the whole thing—it's a you know—it's a funeral for um, Stephen Biko, who's beaten to death in a jail in South Africa. But that line, Peter Gabriel said it much more poetically. You know that you can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire. And that's something that you know Biko and all those people who are telling a, a different story about the future in South Africa became that fire and right. uh, no, nobody could blow it up. The power of stories, the power of storytelling, um, that is something that sort of, um, you, 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 you noticed was so, um, uh, had so much potential uh, for, for change in society. Uh, how do you see this playing out today? And, and it's, mm. it's kind of deeply embedded in us as human beings, right? Oh, like the, it's so deep. You know, it's, it's basically we are storytelling creatures. It's, it's why we've um, become the, you know, the, the dominant species on the planet, is that we're able to share these stories of what we want to do and how we're going to do it. And you know, I think we forget how much of what we see today is the, is the result of stories. You know, we've created this world with stories. The, the modern corporation is just a story. It's something we've agreed is true, and so it becomes true. The days of the week are stories. You know, they don't exist in nature. You know, monkeys don't get happy on Friday, and giraffes don't get Monday <laughs> blues. These are stories that we've agreed. And you know, a world that we can create with stories is a world that we can recreate with stories. So, right. you know, what I'm interested in is how we hack the deep stories of what, you know, what makes us think that one thing is possible and another thing is impossible, or one thing is right and another thing is wrong. You know, and those are hackable stories and. The history of apartheid, I think, is a great example of, you know, a story that was once believed to be true and dominated people's behavior and, and led to the subjugation of an entire people, and then, you know, was proven. Well, there's a better story, and right. we're going to move that better story in to take its place. And we started this 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 podcast with a with a story that you were uh, telling me about this nuclear bomb. Yeah. Um, can can we? finish the story can I can we know what happens next well so, as it turned out they didn't detonate the nuclear weapon we were hiding out uh, in Yucca Flats um, within visual range of this uh, of this nuclear bomb and helicopters flying over to head to try to find us and uh, we hid for four days we delayed it for four days um, you know delaying a nuclear test for four days is not maybe a huge contribution to stopping the Cold War or stopping the, the it's threat a big of deal. annihilation. But, but were you with banners and everything? Like how? Well, what's, what was it? Can you describe a little bit the scene? Well, like, you know, we had to sneak in, and we had to we had to walk for a day and a half across a, a, a live bombing range. And you know, we'd been told that there were security guards that were authorized to shoot to kill. So, you know, we were we were walking in with a great deal of trepidation about what we were going to see. But then. You know, we got there and we discovered they were basically relying on the wilderness around them for their security. And we walked practically right up to where they were drilling the, the test well they were putting the nuclear bomb into. And there's craters everywhere. It's like a moon-like surface. It was a beautiful desert and just absolutely sort of wrecked by nuclear craters. We were looking at um, the, the nightmare vision of what the Earth might be after a nuclear exchange. Mm. And it was a tremendously sobering sight, but it was, yeah, I felt a, a sense of completion, a sense of mission that, uh, that at least for four days, we were able to slow it down. 
what did you do next? Like, do you go to the bar to celebrate or something like this? We like, went to jail, but <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, the cup of coffee I had in that jail after you know six days without coffee was one of the best cup of coffees I've ever had in my life. <laughs>
power of stories. Um, that's what you dedicate your life to uh, at the moment. Yeah. That's your post green piece. Uh, yeah. how, how do you spend your time? Today? Well, you know, I, uh, together with Tommy Crawford, another ex green pisser, we founded a uh, an agency called Dancing Fox, and we're uh, you know, we're storytellers, we're change makers, but we're uh, sort of an artist and activist collective. We're fascinated by what happens when storytellers um, in different media, you know, artists get together with activists because, you know, both in some way are tribes with one foot in the future. Um, they're having a conversation with society about a different way of doing things, about a different way of seeing things. And right. that's a kind of magic when that happens. So, you know, we, we, we train activists in storytelling. We help uh, change makers who are trying to get projects out there to tell more powerful stories and more transformational stories because I think, you know, a lot, a lot of activism is still chipping away at the edge and we need to get down to some fundamentals about, you know, how we, um, how we feed and fuel our planet. You know, that's the, that's the basics. So we do workshops, uh, you know, all over the world and, uh, and to try to help travel. Again. Yeah. And, you know, I love seeing, seeing this beautiful planet and, uh, what it has to offer and the amazing cultures, you know, um, being in uh, in Bali or uh, or Bangkok, uh, going to India to Goa to help out a, an organization there in uh, in a couple of weeks, and I'm just, you know, I love the way change makers all over the world can, you know, be very similar and very different, and uh, and uh, you know, be working with incredibly similar challenges and problems in incredibly different cultures and different situations. So, right. yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying it very much. Well, we're very grateful that you could make some time for us uh, today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. The coffee was great. Great. I'm glad you liked it. And um, if you like the, the music that you've heard today, we are starting a, a Spotify profile where you can find the playlist for each one of the mixtapes. If you don't want the blah blah or if you want to find a track in, in particular, so we'll be back soon with more uh, green knowledge, inspiration, stories, entertainment. Uh, keep up the good work in the meantime. Wow.